0: Uh, We are continuing this morning our study of church history, Forerunners of the Faith. We're in Lesson 11. You guys have been uh, amazing to endure this series, and I'm so grateful for it. Uh, This is Lesson 11 of 13 in our survey of the history of the church. So we have this morning, next week, and then uh, we'll take one more week off, and then we'll finish up the last Sunday in February with our series on Forerunners of the Faith. Uh, this morning we're talking about um, what I'm calling from Reformation to Revival. It's a period of time in church history from the fifteenth or from the fifteen hundreds to the seventeen hundreds, from the sixteenth century to the eighteenth century, from the Reformation, which was in the sixteenth century, to the Evangelical Revival and the Great Awakening, which take place in the eighteenth century. So we're covering that period of time, and we're going to be focusing specifically on English church history this morning. Uh, If you have the Forerunners of the Faith workbook, this lesson 11, it's page 85 in your workbook. If you don't have the workbook, it's no problem. You can just follow along on the PowerPoint. Uh, Really, the theme that I think characterizes this lecture and what makes some of this history so relevant for us today, it's a theme that we've really touched on even in previous lessons, and it's the theme of gospel courage, gospel courage. And what we see in the Reformation in the 16th century is we see the Reformers taking a bold stand for the truth of the gospel, and they did so because they were convinced that Christ alone is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, then his word is the authority for the church. And if his word is the authority for the church, then the gospel that is found on the pages of Scripture is the true gospel, and it must be proclaimed with his authority, the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scripture. And so we see that gospel courage during the time of the Reformation. And really, it was in contrast to the medieval Roman Catholic papal system where you had a pope, the cardinals, the magisterium, the visible Roman Catholic Church as the authority, and the Reformers were willing to risk their lives to take a stand and say, no, Christ is the head of the church, and his gospel is the true gospel. It's that same conviction that we see in the times that follow the Reformation, which we're going to look at this morning, and we see it really in all of the different areas that the Reformation impacted in Europe. Specifically, this morning, we'll be looking again at England, at the English, uh, for really the English successors to the Reformation, a group that we call the Puritans. And for the Puritans and uh, those who follow in their wake, uh, it really is, again, that core conviction. Christ is the, he- the church. Within the system of Anglicanism, it wasn't so much that they were resisting the Pope, though they were, it was that they were resisting actually the kings of England who had placed themselves as the head of the church, and we'll talk about that this morning. I do find it very relevant, though, because what we see in terms of a theme in this time in church history is a willingness for Bible-believing Christians to take a courageous stand even in the face of governmental interference in the church. And against that governmental interference, they were willing to say, no, Christ alone is the head of the church, so we're going to do church the way that the Bible tells us to do church, even if that means that we are persecuted or that there are consequences for us taking that stand. And of course, for us, Living at this time in this season, I think that's a theme that resonates in our hearts because we understand a little bit of saying, you know what, we're not going to allow extra biblical influences to tell us how to do church. Christ alone is the head of the church, and so we're going to look to his word and follow what the Bible says, even if there are consequences involved. We're not the first generation of Christians to take that stand. And I think this morning you'll see and be encouraged by those who have come before us who have exhibited that kind of gospel courage. So from Reformation to Revival, and we're going to start by talking about the English Puritans. Um, The way that I've organized our PowerPoint this morning is to actually talk about the English Puritans by talking about the English monarchs that were reigning during this particular time in church history. Uh, If there's one thing that I know to be true of many Americans, they are fascinated with the British monarchy, so I'm trying to add some interest and intrigue this morning by talking about the British monarchy, but it's not William and Kate, it's people like Henry VIII. Uh, So we're going to track Puritan history by talking a little bit about uh, the British or the English monarchy at this time under Henry VIII. It's England and Wales, and uh, then with James I, Scotland gets added, and and eventually we get the British the British, um, the, the British uh, Commonwealth. So with Henry VIII, uh, the English Reformation starts with Henry VIII, and Henry VIII is actually one of the most well known monarchs in English history. There's been a lot of drama about him because there was a lot of drama during his reign. Last time, uh, it was two weeks ago, when we were talking about the Reformation, and we looked at Martin Luther, we looked at John Calvin, and we were talking about what motivated these men to take the stand that they took. And when we talk about the Reformation that took place on the mainland of Europe... It really was a Reformation of conviction. It was these theological truths that were driving them to take the stand that they took. The Reformation in England was a little bit different. There were men of conviction in England, no doubt about it. But in terms of what actually sparked or caused the Reformation in England, it wasn't so much these biblical principles that were driving it. It was the fact that Henry VIII, the king of England, wanted a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragon, because she had only given birth to a daughter, and he really wanted a son. And the Roman Catholic Church said, no, we're not going to give you a divorce. And so because Henry could not get a divorce through the Roman Catholic Church, he essentially said, well, if you're not willing to give me a divorce or an annulment, then I'm going to divorce the Catholic Church in order to divorce my wife which is not a great reason for becoming Protestant, but that is how the English Reformation began. And so in the 1530s, Parliament, under Henry's uh, direction, Parliament declared Henry VIII to be the supreme head and governor of the Church of England, and Anglicanism was born. So that's how Anglicanism starts. Well, as you can imagine, if that's the beginning of your Reformation, that's, again, a Reformation more of convenience than conviction. The result of that is that there's going to be a lot of waffling back and forth because people are realizing this is just a political decision. It is not uh, actually something that's based in doctrinal conviction. Uh, When Henry VIII died, his son, Edward VI, was only nine years old. So, Henry did get his divorce from Catherine. He married another lady named Anne Boleyn. She also uh, gave him a daughter. So Catherine's daughter was named Mary. She'll become queen in a little bit. Then Anne's daughter was named Elizabeth. She'll become queen also a little bit later. And then he finally married, he executed Anne. Then he finally married a girl named Jane, and she did give birth to a son. His name was Edward, and he became king after Henry died. Edward was only nine years old. Uh, Henry VIII would go on to have a few more wives. In fact, there were a total of six wives of Henry VIII, and it ended badly for five of them. Uh, number six actually survived her husband. But that's maybe for a, a different discussion since we're just talking about gospel courage here. Uh, Edward VI <clears throat> was Protestant. Um, Again, he was only nine years old when he came to the throne. He was compared to Josiah, the boy king of the Old Testament, who brought about revival in Old Testament Israel. Here we have Edward, a Protestant king on the throne of England, and all of the Protestants in England were very, very excited about this. But Edward only lived for six more years. Uh, He only reigned for six years. He died in his mid-teens and so the the Protestant efforts in England were short-lived because Edward was followed by his older half-sister, Mary, and Mary was very much a Roman Catholic. Um, Mary, of course, was the daughter of Catherine, the woman that Henry VIII had wanted a divorce from, and I think Mary held the Protestants responsible for the way that her father had treated her mother and she saw it as her goal to rid England of Protestantism. She became known as Bloody Mary in English history because she tried very hard to persecute and to execute uh, all of the Protestant leadership in England. Uh, So it was during this time that John Fox wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, which uh, traces the history of the way that the English Protestants were treated under Mary. Many English Protestants during this time fled from England and they went to the mainland of Europe and they were influenced by those in places like Wittenberg and Frankfurt. And in fact, quite a number of English refugees went to Geneva, including John Knox, who was, of course, from Scotland, but he had been in England and he went to Geneva and actually pastored a church of English refugees in Geneva in the mid-1550s, and there's actually a really uh, significant English translation of the Bible called the Geneva Bible, which was translated by some of these English refugees in Geneva during this period of time. Uh, The Bible that came across on the Mayflower, for example, was a Geneva Bible. All of this is setting up the stage for both explaining how the English Reformation took place and also how the Puritans fit into this. Because as these English refugees in the mainland of Europe saw how the Reformation in Europe had taken place, a Reformation, again, of conviction, not a Reformation of convenience, uh, they then uh, they saw those convictions lived out And when they returned to England, they wanted that same kind of conviction, Bible-based Reformation movement to take place in England. Now, thankfully, in God's good providence, Mary did not reign for very long, only about five to six years. And then she died, and she did not have an heir. And so she was succeeded by her younger half-sister, Elizabeth I., And, um, of course, Elizabeth I reigned for a very long time, not quite as long as Elizabeth II, but uh, Elizabeth I reigned for more than 40 years. And Elizabeth I was Protestant, and so Protestantism now in England actually takes a firm grip of the country. It becomes well-established. But Elizabeth's Protestantism was something that represented something of a compromise, a middle way. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as the Elizabethan settlement. And it was sort of a, a halfway position between Roman Catholicism and the Protestantism that was so clearly evident in cities like Geneva and Wittenberg on the continent of Europe. And it had three basic characteristics, and these three basic characteristics become the three sort of defining marks of Anglicanism. So Anglican refers to the Church of England. The Church of England is what Henry VIII started when he divorced the Catholic Church. Anglicanism, and in the United States and other places throughout the world, Anglicanism is referred to as Episcopalianism, okay? So Episcopalian, Anglican, Church of England, those are all the same thing. Uh, Excuse me. These three defining marks, almost like three legs of a stool, would be that uh, they held to what's called an Episcopalian form of church government. Uh, Episkopos is a Greek word that means bishop, and so in the Anglican system, you have bishops, then you have archbishops, and then you have the king or the queen as the head of the Church of England. So that was one leg of the stool. Uh, then in terms of the way they did church, <coughs> excuse me, in the way in terms of the way they did church, uh, it was what's called a high church form of liturgy which means that it was very, very formal and ceremonial. And actually, the way they did church, it still felt a lot like the medieval Roman Catholic system. And in fact, if you've ever watched an Anglican service, or better yet, if you've ever seen a royal wedding, you know that the formality of the Anglican church still kind of looks a lot like the Catholic church. You know, the, the bishops are still wearing really big hats and really fancy robes. So you have a structure of church government where the king or the queen is the head of the church, and then you have a style of doing church that still feels very Catholic. And then the third leg on the stool was the third leg on the stool was theological or doctrinal. They were Protestant in the way that they thought about theology. So we might say that they were reformed or reformational. In their theology, So these are the three marks of Anglicanism. It's theologically reformed, but the way they do church feels a lot like it's still Catholic, and the way they think about the hierarchy of the church has the king or the queen at the top of it. That's how Anglicanism gets established during the time of Elizabeth. And it's during the time of Elizabeth that you have the birth of Puritanism. So the Puritans were those English refugees who had fled from England during the reign of Bloody Mary. They had gone to the mainland of Europe. They had been influenced by the convictions of the European Reformation, and they had come back to England, and they wanted to see that same kind of Reformation take place in England. And so they were not satisfied with these three characteristics of Anglicanism, specifically the first two. They loved the Reformed theology. That was not a problem. But where they felt like the Reformation in England was still incomplete was in a system that put a king or a queen in the place of the Pope, right? We're supposed to have no head of the church except for Christ, and now we have King Henry VIII, or in the case of Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, As the supreme governor of the Church of England, this is something that the Puritans find unacceptable. And then this idea of a a very Catholic-feeling church service, which was governed in England by something called the Book of Common Prayer, which wasn't just common prayers, it was the common way in which every church in England had to structure their worship service. And the Puritans were like, no, this is still very Roman Catholic. We're not going to do this. We want to do church the way that the Bible says to do church. So the Puritans resisted the form of church government, and they resisted the liturgy, the way in which the government forced churches to do church, and they wanted to purify the Anglican church of those things that they felt were still vestiges of an old Roman Catholic governmental system. So that's why they become known as the Puritans. It was actually a term that was used by their opponents, like, oh, you're the ones who want to purify the church. And eventually they just adopted that term and applied it to themselves. Yes, we are. We're the ones who want to purify the church of anything that is not a biblical way of doing church. Um, the Puritans under Elizabeth, I've heard one historian say that under Elizabeth they were, they were disappointed because they thought, hey, we've got a Protestant queen on the throne, this is great, and uh, we, we really think that we're going to be able to put these reforms in place, and it just never happened. Uh, one other thing just to note about England at this time, England did not have religious freedom. Everyone in England was part of the Church of England. And every church of England had to do church according to the Book of Common Prayer. If you didn't like that, you didn't have any other choice. And groups that tried to meet outside of the Church of England were persecuted. They could be fined, people could be arrested, you could be thrown in jail. And in fact, Parliament passed a number of uh, legal acts called the Acts Against the Puritans, that outlawed any separatist groups in England during this time. So it's not that you had religious freedom and it's like, oh, if I don't want to be Anglican, I'll just go down the street to a different church. That kind of thing doesn't exist at this time in church history. It doesn't exist anywhere on the planet at this time in church history, um, and certainly not in England. So after Elizabeth, Elizabeth dies in 1603. And uh, then her cousin, so Elizabeth is the last of the Tudors. Her cousin James Stewart, who happens to be James the Sixth of Scotland, becomes James the First of England. And the Puritans are ecstatic because Scotland is Presbyterian, and they think if anybody is going to be favorable to what we're trying to do here, it's going to be James. In fact, when James was uh, made king, as he traveled from Edinburgh down to London. There was a group of uh, of Puritans, um, and Puritans were not just pastors. Puritans were like evangelicals in America today. There were evangelical businessmen. There were Puritan businessmen, Puritan merchants, Puritan politicians, and Puritan preachers. Uh, There was a document that they had signed, a petition by a thousand Puritans that they presented to James asking him to make England Puritan, Uh, but James refused. In fact, in 1604, he held a conference at Hampton Court where he told the Puritans, no, I'm not going to make the Church of England Puritan. We're going to make it Anglican, which is still these three things. And uh, James was even more vigilant in persecuting anyone who did not comply with the Book of Common Prayer or with these other Anglican structures. Um, It was during the reign of, of James that you had uh, one particular Puritan separatist, a guy named John Smythe, who uh, left, fled from England around 1609, went to the Netherlands, and uh, they found some semblance of religious freedom there, these separatists, and eventually they decided they didn't want their kids to grow up Dutch, and so they got on a boat called the Mayflower, these Puritans, and uh, came across to... Uh, Plymouth. So the pilgrims are separatist Puritans in England under the time of James who don't have the freedom to meet or they'll be prosecuted. And so they flee from England, they go to the uh, Netherlands and eventually come across to Plymouth. So the Puritans go from being disappointed under Elizabeth to being uh, really uh, disillusioned under James I. Now, the one good thing that James did was he did authorize a new translation of the Bible because the previous authorized version... Oh, that's another thing. In the Church of England, you can only use the version that's authorized by the king or the queen. And the version that Elizabeth had authorized was called the Bishop's Bible, and it was a horrible translation. Nobody liked it, but it was the only translation you could use in church. So everybody used the Geneva Bible at home because they loved it. And everybody had to use the the bishop's Bible in church, even though they all disliked it. Uh, James actually authorized a new translation of the Bible, of course, called the King James Version, and that was first published in 1611. After James died, his son Charles came to the throne, and uh, Charles made things even worse. So the Puritans go from being disappointed under Elizabeth, disillusioned under James, to really reaching the point of utter despair under Charles. Uh, Charles not only retained the Episcopalian structure and the high church liturgy, but he actually got rid of a whole bunch of the Reformed theology and replaced it with something that was growing in popularity at that time called Arminianism, which, just real quickly, Arminianism, named after a guy named Jacob Arminius, Arminianism was a denial, really, of God's sovereignty in salvation. And of course, for the Puritans, it was right on the right on the border of heresy in terms of the way that they thought about a denial of God's sovereignty in salvation. But uh, Charles, through his archbishop, a guy named William Laud, actually prohibited any preaching on the doctrine of election in any of the churches in England, which was, from a theological perspective, one of the most frustrating things that the Puritans could face. So now the Church of England is a place where the Puritans really find no refuge at all. And uh, you have... Tens of thousands of Puritans fleeing from England during the reign of Charles. This is called the Great Migration, and they come across to New England, and they established the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the late 1520s. And Puritan New England really gets started because Anglican Old England is persecuting Puritans. Uh, The situation in England gets so bad that uh, the Puritans, at one point, finally gain control of Parliament, and then through Parliament, they overthrow the King. And this is known as the English Civil War. And the English Civil War is between Parliament and the King, but it really is between Puritanism and. Uh, a form of Anglicanism that is persecuting the Puritans. Um, Eventually, Parliament wins this war uh, through its new model army, led by a general named Oliver Cromwell, and we'll talk more about him in just a moment. But Puritanism for the last, this is in the 1640s, so Puritanism for the last 100 years has been trying to reform the church in England. They want to see the church of England become a church that is characterized by the same biblical convictions as the reformed churches on the continent of Europe. And they've been frustrated at every point, but now they finally have the opportunity because they take control of England. And so what do they do? Well, they form an assembly... Called the Westminster Assembly. And I'm sure some of you have heard about the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? That's the first question from the shorter catechism to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Second question, what what is the means that God has given us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever? And it goes on to talk about how the Scripture is the means by which we know God and can pursue Him. Uh, So they actually form an assembly at Westminster. And the purpose of this assembly is not just to create a a catechism that we can all recite later. The purpose of it is actually to completely redesign the Church of England. And so they create what are known as the, uh, well, the Westminster Confession. It's the Confession of Faith, and the Westminster Standards are the standards by which the Church of England is going to look as a Puritan church. Now, these Westminster Standards only end up being in effect for about a decade because eventually the uh, the monarchy is restored in England. And when it is, all of this is undone. Uh, but the Westminster Assembly was an attempt to finally get the Church of England to become the evangelical Puritan church that Bible-believing Christians in England at this time had always hoped it would be. And again, they were constantly frustrated in their efforts to reform the church because of governmental resistance. So Oliver Cromwell is the general who uh, led Parliament's army. Uh, ironically enough, after he gained control of everything, he dissolved Parliament and essentially became a, he became a dictator, for lack of a better term, in England in the uh, 1650s. This a uh, time known as the protectorate uh, when England returned to a commonwealth form of government and Oliver Cromwell declared himself to be Lord Protector of England. Significantly, he never claimed to be a king. He didn't try and start a new line of kings and he was a Puritan politician, a Puritan army general. And for at least this period in England's uh, history, Puritans had control of the country control of the church. It's also known as the period of Puritan ascendancy in England. After Oliver Cromwell died, his son Richard Cromwell was unable to retain power, and Parliament decided, you know what, we really want our king back. And so they brought Charles II. Uh, Charles I had been executed back in 1649. Charles II had been sent into exile, and he was brought back and uh, he was restored in the year 1660. Charles II, as you might imagine, was no friend of Puritans. The Puritans were the ones who had executed his dad and who had sent him and his family into exile in the Netherlands. And so when he returns, he said, I am hitting control Z on the Westminster Assembly, and we are going back to Anglicanism. Anglicanism in which... The king is the head of the church, and the Book of Common Prayer is what everybody has to do for church. And in terms of theology, it's going to be far more Arminian than uh, Reformed in its view of doctrine. And so in 1662, the Act of Uniformity was passed, which said every church in England has to do church according to the Book of Common Prayer, Otherwise, you will lose your license, which means as a minister, you're no longer legally allowed to preach, and uh, you'll be out of a job, out of your pulpit, and you'll no longer have any influence. Uh, The result of that, because the Puritans were like, we can't sign that. The Book of Common Prayer represents a return to something that's Catholic. We're not going to do that. We're not going to sign that. Uh, So the result of that was something called the Great Ejection, in which... Uh, around 2,500 Puritan pastors were kicked out of their churches in 1662. And uh, again, this means they, start, they try to meet outdoors, uh, but any meeting that's not authorized by the government is illegal. People are thrown in jail. This is a time period when John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, gets put in prison for 12 years because he refuses to agree to stop preaching. And... Uh, this kind of thing is just par for the course in England at this time. Um, similar things are happening actually in Scotland at this time. There's a group in Scotland known as the Covenanters who similar, similarly had said, we're not, gonna, we're not going to use the Book of Common Prayer because the government has no right to tell us how to do church. The Bible alone tells us how to do church because Christ alone is the head of the church. And so we submit to the king in every other area of life, but when it comes to the church, we only submit to King Jesus. And uh, there's a period during the reign of Charles II, who was also the king of Scotland, called the killing time in Scotland when covenanters were massacred and martyred because they refused to implement the Book of Common Prayer in their churches. So again, gospel courage, right? Taking a stand when the government says, this is what you are only allowed to do in the church and Christians, Bible-believing Christians saying, well, no, um, we, we, are, we are not, you know, we respect your authority, but we're not willing to let you tell us how to do church because that's not your jurisdiction. That jurisdiction belongs only to Christ because he alone is the head of the church. And uh, again, we are seeing just a little glimpse of that in these days uh, as those who are saying, you know, Christ is the head of the church. And while we respect the government, the government doesn't have the right to tell us what we can or cannot do as part of our worship service. So I just want you to be encouraged to know that faithful believers throughout church history have faced that same thing and often done so when the consequences were honestly Uh, Much more severe. Um, After Charles II, his brother James comes to the throne, and James is Roman Catholic. So now the Church of England actually comes full circle to where they have a Roman Catholic back on the throne. This becomes intolerable, and James gets overthrown in what's called the Glorious Revolution of 1688, 1689, uh, when uh, his When the daughter of, um, I believe it's the daughter of James, uh, Mary, uh, comes to the throne, William and Mary, in what's called the Glorious Revolution. And that brings some level of relief in England in terms of religious persecution. But by this point, the Puritans in England have been so marginalized that their influence in society is significantly reduced which is significant for what we're going to talk about here next in terms of the fact that the Puritan influence reaches its zenith during the time of Oliver Cromwell, uh, but uh, shortly thereafter, uh, they are sidelined to the point where their influence is almost, uh, almost non-existent. All right, I want to talk just a little bit about Puritanism in America Uh, Because, of course, during the reign of Charles I, you have um, during the reign of James I and also Charles I, you have thousands of Puritans. So, under James, it was some of those separatist Puritans who flee from England and eventually come across and start the Plymouth uh, colony in uh, the year 1620. Uh, They're known as the Pilgrims, and of course, we celebrate the Pilgrims. Uh, every Thanksgiving. And then uh, by 1628, so during the reign of Charles I, now you have hundreds of Puritans fleeing England. Uh, They estimate as many as 20,000 Puritans flee England during the reign of Charles I and come to uh, New England. And again, because Puritanism is bigger than just pastors, uh, you have Puritan businessmen some of these Puritan businessmen went to Charles and he actually said, yeah, you can start for, for business reasons, you can start a, a colony in the New World. And they used that economic enterprise as a mechanism for also uh, enjoying religious freedom, uh, freedom for pursuing a, a Puritan way of life in New England. Uh, Just for the sake of making the PowerPoint a little more interesting, there's a painting from the uh, late 19th century of one artist's imagination of what the Puritans, the pilgrims, looked like as they arrived there at Plymouth. Um, I have a feeling after (laughs) weeks and months at sea, when they finally got there, they maybe didn't look that put together. But in any case, um, if that makes Thanksgiving more enjoyable for you, that could be your mental image. Uh, The initial wave of Puritans who arrived in New England were very, of course, zealous. They had been persecuted. They had fled. They had found religious freedom in the New World. Uh, They paid a great price for it, of course. Many died as a result of disease and and other harsh conditions in New England. But they felt, and they were right, they were convinced that it was worth it because they wanted to worship uh, Christ uh, without that governmental interference. But as they have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, I mean, it's almost like the biblical record of Joshua and Judges, right? When you get to the book of Judges, it says that after the generation of Joshua and the fellow elders who were there with him in Israel, after they died, there arose a generation who was very apathetic to the things of God. Um, That same thing happens even in American church history where that initial enthusiasm and fervor for God begins to drift into kind of an apathy, a nominalism. And so by the time we get to Jonathan Edwards in the early 18th century, Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703, by the time we get to Jonathan Edwards, um, the the churches in New England, much like the churches in Old England, they all claim to be Christian, but... Many of the people who attend are just there because of external, uh, they're just there because, you know, they've grown up being Christian, they just call themselves Christian. It's a nominal Christianity. They haven't actually been converted or regenerated, they have not been born again. Another important factor in this, both in England and New England, is something in the 17th century that really grows in terms of popularity in the 18th century called the Age of Enlightenment. And we don't have time to go into all the details of this, but I'm sure you've heard of the Enlightenment period, post-Enlightenment thinking. The Enlightenment is a move away from religious tradition, which was the Catholic system, or even biblical revelation, which is the Protestant system, to seeing reason and science as the primary authority for everything that we think about in our world. So when you think about uh, the basis for a worldview or an epistemology, it begins to shift in Western civilization from religion and the Bible to things like reason and science, and along with it, what's called romanticism, the pursuit of my own happiness right? So the reason for life is my own enjoyment, recreation, arts, these kinds of things. And uh, the authority that governs my life is reason and science. And, and Western civilization adopts that really in the 17th and 18th centuries. And that shift also impacts the way that people in England and New England think about religion, and so the, by the time we get to the 18th century, the Puritan influence in old England is pretty much gone. The Puritan influence in new England is largely apathetic. And the general mentality in both England and new England is, hey, I don't need the Bible. I have science. I have reason. And I don't want to live for God. I want to live to pursue my own happiness, uh, which even in our postmodern post-Enlightenment society is still pretty much the way that most people think about their reality. It's in that context, then, that we have the need for a revival. In the same way that the, in the, same way that the Reformation was a revival against the backdrop of Roman Catholic sacramental traditionalism, now we have in England what's called the Evangelical Revival, and in New England what's called the Great Awakening. And these revivals take place against the backdrop of apathy, indifference, and nominalism in a culture that calls itself Christian, but honestly, most people are not converted. Uh, there are still parts of our country today in the United States uh, where, you know, I think of parts of the Bible Belt as we call it, where everyone claims to be Christian. But if you've visited those places or if you've grown up there, you know that a lot of people are Christian in name only, and they still need the gospel. And in those contexts, sometimes you have to convince people that they're not saved in order to share the gospel with them so that they can become followers of Jesus Christ in a true sense. That same thing was true in both England and New England in the 1700s, in the 18th century. Uh, These are not British monarchs. These are Christian leaders in the 18th century, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield. They're the three primary figures that God used in the mid-1700s to bring a revival to England. And uh, this revival, it's called the Evangelical Revival, but it really centers around the birth of a new movement called Methodism. You've heard about the Methodist Church. Um, Unfortunately, the modern-day Methodist Church is more liberal than it is Christian. But original Methodism had to do with a methodical approach to studying the Bible and a methodical approach to living the Christian life. All three of these guys grew up in Anglicanism. All three of them grew up thinking that the way to be a Christian was to just be a good person, to be a moral person. And in fact, they all met at Oxford where they started a club that they called the Holy Club. And the whole goal, I mean, talk about sounding like a nerd, but the whole goal of the Holy Club was to be extreme in doing things that seemed externally to be holy. All three of them acknowledged that they were not truly Christians when they were part of the Holy Club. They were, like the Apostle Paul, trying to earn salvation through their good works. It was after their time at the Holy Club that God actually saved each one of them by showing them that external good works were worthless in the eyes of God and that if you are to be a Christian you must be born again it requires an internal heart change that evidences itself in in a changed life but you can't fake the internal reality by just being good on the outside and so methodism was an against the backdrop of anglican Moralism and external behavior modification, kind of Christianity. Just be good and you'll be good, right? That's kind of the idea. Um, just be good in the way you behave, and when you stand before God, He'll let you into heaven, I'm sure, right? Just be good and it'll all be good. Uh, that was the way Anglicanism was, uh, that was the kind of Christianity that characterized Anglicanism in this time period. And against that backdrop, the Methodists said, no, 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 no. True Christianity is about an internal heart change, which is only something that happens when the sinner cries out to God for mercy and God in his mercy transforms the heart of that sinner. And so this emphasis on regeneration and on being born again was, uh, some of you have seen Paul Washer's message, I'm sure a shocking message, Shocking message from a youth pastor, or I forget exactly what the title is on YouTube, but it's been viewed many, many times. And and Paul Washer's approach in that sermon is essentially to preach to a group of Christian youth hey, you think you're saved, let me tell you why you're not and how you can be. That's the kind of effect that the Methodists had in England in the 18th century. Uh, As you can imagine, the sort of Anglican church at the time was not real thrilled about this kind of message. And so the, the pulpits in England were often closed to John Wesley or to George Whitfield, And so they began to preach outside. And uh, this allowed them actually to draw massive crowds. And George Whitfield in particular had a booming voice and was able to preach to crowds of thousands of people. In fact, in Philadelphia, uh, he preached to a crowd of, I think it was 20,000 20, people. And Ben Franklin, of all people, was there. And Ben Franklin actually scientifically proved that George Whitfield's voice could be articulately heard by tens of thousands of people without modern amplification, which is just an amazing thing to consider. So here God uses one of these preachers to preach the gospel to a church that thinks it's Christian, but is not. And the result is, in England, what we call the Evangelical Revival. Sorry, there's the pictures of these guys. Um, Charles Wesley is most famous, just to mention him for a moment, most famous for being a hymn writer, he wrote uh, some 6,000 hymns, and many of the hymns that we sing were written by Charles Wesley. Hymns like, "O oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, which he actually wrote on the one-year anniversary of his true conversion because he was so amazed that God would save him. Uh, hymns like, And Can It Be, and others. So John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield. All right, in America, we have a similar movement called the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening, uh, the key figure there is Jonathan Edwards, and we've already mentioned Jonathan Edwards. And there's a couple of interesting biographies of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, one is written by um, George Marsden. Um, and uh, the the interesting thing about the... The other one is written by Ian Murray. That's why I'm getting stuck in my head, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the, of the author. But Ian Murray and George Marsden have written two really helpful biographies of uh, Jonathan Edwards. So if you're interested in studying the life of Jonathan Edwards, I would point you to both of those resources. The one by George Marsden is, uh, is interesting because he parallels... Jonathan Edwards and Benjamin Franklin. We just mentioned Benjamin Franklin. Both of them grew up in a Puritan New England. Both of them actually created at one point in their life a list of resolutions for how they wanted to improve their their conduct and their behavior. And we'll talk about Jonathan Edwards' resolutions here in a moment. But the two of them were very different in this sense. Jonathan Edwards was a true believer, and Ben Franklin just saw Puritanism as sort of a, here are some good truisms for how to live my life as a nice person, but Ben Franklin, we don't have any reason to believe, was actually a born-again believer. So it's interesting to trace the way that two of these leading influences in colonial America both grew up in Puritanism, both... saw the value of a Puritan lifestyle, but for one of them, it was the real deal, and for another one, it was more of just a moral package, in any case. um, So Jonathan Edwards, his grandfather was a famous pastor, Solomon Stoddard. His father was a pastor, Timothy Edwards. Actually, this is completely random, but since uh, you since you're here, I'll tell you. Jonathan Edwards was one of 11 children. Uh, he had 10 sisters. He was the only boy. And uh, the Edwards family was actually very tall, especially for colonial times. All of his sisters were about six feet tall. And the people in Timothy Edwards's church used to tell their pastor that he had 60 feet of daughters, uh, which, again, completely random, but... For some reason, that popped in my head. So uh, Jonathan Edwards, the only boy in a family full of sisters. Uh, He was a very bright boy. He went to Yale. Yale was started in 1702. Oh, I didn't mention the fact that Harvard was started in 1636 as a Puritan training school. It was the first university started in uh, New England, uh, the oldest university in the United States. Yale started in 1702, and Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He attended Yale and later tutored at Yale. And then he himself, at the end of his life, would become the president for a short period of time of the College of New Jersey, what is today Princeton University. So it's interesting to know these Ivy League schools all started as Puritan schools. Uh, The only exception in the Ivy League is Cornell, which did not start as a religious institution. Um, shortly after his conversion, he was converted while at Yale. He had gotten sick and thought he was going to die, and there's nothing like thinking that you're going to die to make you contemplate eternity. And in contemplating eternity, he realized he was not ready for eternity, and he cried out to God for mercy, and God saved him. And then as a young man, 18, 19, 20 years old, he penned 70 resolutions, and these 70 resolutions were not like New Year's resolutions. They were instead an expression of his desire to live for the glory of God. If you've ever read the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, you probably, like me, were very convicted by them. You might be encouraged to know that in his journals and in his diary, he himself admits that he struggled often and failed often in trying to keep his resolutions. So he was not perfect. He was rather someone who wanted to see God glorified in his life, and those resolutions represent that ambition, which is a holy ambition. Right? We make it our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. He became the pastor of the church where his grandfather had pastored in Northampton in fifteen. Uh, excuse me, in seventeen twenty-seven, uh, when his grandfather uh, died, and. Um, And it was while preaching there that there started to be a revival uh, amongst the congregation. Again, a congregation, it was one of the largest churches in New England, uh, several hundred people, but a, a large congregation, but a congregation that had always grown up calling themselves Christian, calling themselves Puritan. And yet, as Jonathan Edwards begins to preach the gospel, people are getting saved. So Christians are becoming Christians, right? Uh, what I mean by that is people who call themselves Christians but weren 't really converted are hearing the true gospel and god 's saving them out of their self de- deception their hypocrisy, and their spiritual apathy. Uh, George Whitfield, uh, who we saw his picture earlier, George Whitfield actually comes to to the new to the colonies uh, he comes to uh, the new world seven different times, so he makes 13 transatlantic uh, voyages uh, here and back. Uh, On the 13th, he actually got here and then died in New England. So he made seven different trips to the American colonies and was one of the most recognizable figures in colonial America. He was the most well-known evangelist of his day. And when he was here in 1739 to 1741, he was preaching throughout New England. He preached in Jonathan Edwards's church and people were getting saved. And this was known as the Great Awakening. One of the things that was really surprising about the Great Awakening is that the Stoic, Puritan, sort of uh, non-emotional way of life was being interrupted by revival And people were reacting in very emotional ways. They're weeping over their sin. They're crying out to God for mercy. In certain church services, people were actually wailing under the weight of the judgment of God. And for some of the older generation of Puritans, they actually reacted negatively to the Great Awakening because they didn't know what to do with all these emotions. Why are people crying? Stop it. That's not what Puritans do. Um, But that's what the gospel does when it wrecks your life only to rescue your life. And uh, so Jonathan Edwards actually had to defend the Great Awakening, and he did so by saying, look, emotions don't prove anything. What proves whether or not this is a true revival is if there is repentance and the fruit of repentance. And that's his main argument in some of his most famous works like his treatise on the religious affections. Uh, Just a couple final thoughts about Jonathan Edwards, and this is where our PowerPoint ends in case you're worried. But uh, he was highly influenced by a friend of his named David Brainerd. Uh, David Brainerd was passionate about taking the gospel to unreached people groups. In this case, it was some of the Native American Indian tribes in New England. And Brainerd actually was so vigorous in his uh, evangelistic efforts that he seriously ruined his health and died, obviously, in God's providence, exactly when God uh, had planned. Uh, But from a human perspective, uh, David Brainerd seems like he died early almost uh, because he had given up so much of his health in order to try and take the gospel to some of these tribal groups. And Jonathan Edwards was so impacted by this that he actually wrote a short biography of the life of David Brainerd and published David Brainerd's prayer journal. And God would use that publication a generation later in the life of a guy named William Carey to spark the modern missions movement. And we'll talk about that next week. Um. In, 17, in the late 1740s, uh, there was some controversy in Jonathan Edwards's church. In particular, the biggest part of the controversy, Jonathan Edwards didn't want to serve communion to people who claimed to be Christian, but who had never actually been converted. Um, the Bible says communion is only for believers. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards agreed with what the Bible says. But people in his church felt like, no, you can't do that. These people are Christians in good standing with the community. they're allowed to take communion. You can't tell them they can't take communion just because they're not actually Christians. They didn't say it quite like that, but that was essentially their argument and as a result of Jonathan Edwards saying no i, I I'm only the church only is going to let people who are true believers participate in the Lord's Supper. He ended up getting kicked out of his church after more than twenty years of faithful ministry there so Jonathan Edwards gets fired, which is just. You know, amazing to me that um, the, a guy we would look back on that some have said is the greatest theologian America has ever produced, he got fired by his church. So he then from there goes, uh, I mean, what do you do? There were actually churches all across England and New England that wanted him to come be their pastor, but he had been so impacted by David Brainerd that he moved to a town on the sort of the frontiers at that point, of Massachusetts, Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And uh, in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he pastors, he also then ministers and evangelizes the Housatonic Indian tribe, a group of Native Americans there who had never heard the gospel. So it's really kind of cool, this idea of gospel courage, which I'm trying to weave through all of this history, from the Reformation, where it's gospel courage standing for the truth, the pure gospel, to the Puritan movement, where we're going to preach and teach the gospel in church without letting the government interfere, to now New England, where we're going to preach and teach the gospel to apostate and apathetic churches that need to be awakened from their spiritual slumber, to unreached people groups. We're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we're going to, in keeping with the Great Commission, as you go make disciples. We're going to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation, including those unreached tribes that happen to be here in North America. So it's really kind of fascinating to watch how each of these generations of Christians, those who are passionate about proclaiming the true gospel, how they apply that in every different context in which the Lord places them. Um, at the end of his time in Stockbridge, uh, he was asked to come be the president of the College of New Jersey, which was actually started as a Great Awakening school. I mentioned that there were some of the <clears throat> old, old Puritans, older generation of Puritans who didn't like the Great Awakening, and uh, Harvard and Yale were kind of in that camp. So they needed to start a new college that was open to revival, and uh, that was the College of New Jersey. And um, so Jonathan Edwards was asked to come be the president there. And so he did. He, he agreed. He came. Uh, he was inoculated for smallpox. And um, <clears throat> um, he was inoculated for smallpox. And he actually contracted smallpox from the inoculation and died shortly after becoming the president of the college that would become Princeton. And uh, so I'm grateful that medical science has progressed as much as it has, though there are still controversies today about vaccines and inoculations, aren't there? All right. Just a final few thoughts and then we'll be done. <clears throat> All right, the Puritans and Protestant evangelists of the 17th and 18th centuries upheld the Reformation principles of Scripture alone as their highest authority and faith alone as the essence of the true gospel, and that their conviction was that Christ alone is the head of the church, and it was from that conviction that they sought to resist governmental interference from either popes or kings, It was also that conviction that motivated their courageous proclamation of the gospel, both to apostate and apathetic congregations and also to unreached people groups. And as we've mentioned, it was that desire to reach the unreached in this generation that sparks the modern missions movement in the next generation. And that's what we'll look at next time. All right. Well, we're out of time for this morning. I know we covered a lot of history, but the the thread that connects it all is gospel courage, and that's the same kind of gospel courage that ought to characterize our hearts and our lives. Let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the examples of those in church history who were faithful to the gospel, no matter the cost, who were eager to proclaim it to those that you brought into their lives and into their worlds, whether it was an apostate and apathetic church congregation, whether it was an unreached tribe, they were eager to preach the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ because they recognized that there is salvation under there is salvation through no other name under heaven than the name of Jesus. That is our conviction as well, and we ask that we would be courageous and faithful in living out that conviction in our own lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.